Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Our text for today comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's great to be with you. Today we're continuing our series we're calling Pursuing the Way, which is all about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And last week we talked about the fact that Jesus extends a kind of invitation to us. And the invitation is to discipleship, but the invitation is also to a kind of fruitful life. And And we also talked last week about how this invitation to fruitfulness is a bit different than the kind of picture of success that we have in our modern American context. It seems that the internet is full of people trying to sell us a more efficient, productive, bigger, and better life. Success in the eyes of so many today is about this surface-level projection uh, that we have by which we can justify ourselves in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. So I win at work. I appear successful. Uh, My family projects that we have it all together. uh, This isn't me, but you look good with your shirt off at the beach or something, right? (laughs) It often has to do with a lot of striving and the presentation of a false self to the world. It stems from a belief that in order to be good enough, right, in order to be accepted, I have to be something or do something of value in order to be accepted. But fruitfulness, in contrast to that kind of worldly conception of production or of value, is not about striving at all. It actually turns out to be not about first and foremost maintaining the surf, make, making sure that the surface level of my life looks like it should. Fruitfulness is about abiding in God's grace and through apprenticeship to Jesus, allowing him to do a deep kind of under the surface work first that then yields lasting fruit over the long haul. It's a time sensitive thing, right? Fruitfulness stems from the assurance that I am already loved that there is nothing I can do to earn God's favor. Rather, I do the work of following Jesus, of being his student, out of a place of acceptance rather than out of a place of wanting to be accepted. You know, this is why Jesus can instruct his followers to take his yoke upon them, which was an ancient term for a rabbi's set of teachings. A rabbi had a yoke. They had a school of religious thought that they placed on their students or that they taught their students. And this is the language that Jesus is using there when he talks about taking his yoke upon them. But notice that when Jesus gives this instruction to take his yoke, uh, he says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. There's not the weight to it. And it's light because it's not about striving or earning or attaining 
or even conforming to an external standard of behavior. It is instead about participating in the great renewal that Jesus wants to do in each of our lives, a little bit like we talked earlier. And so here's how I sum it up this morning. Discipleship is not about living up to a standard Jesus has set for us. It's about living into a life that has already been gifted to us in the person of Jesus. And in our teaching text for today, Jesus is saying that a life lived in vital connection to him in this way, this life of discipleship or apprenticeship or studentship, I guess, to him will be a life that again bears fruit. There's that theme again of bearing fruit. But how do I bear good fruit? How do I follow Jesus in such a way that I allow his word and his ways to teach to train and to transform my heart so that I can bear fruit, so that I can live into the abundant life that he's promised for me, has made available to me through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And that is a slightly more complicated question, I think. And it has uh, some significant interest for me, and I think it has some significant interest for all of us, especially given some of the things we've seen occurring over the past number of years. Have any of you been aware of the fact that there have been numerous spirit, Christian spiritual leaders, pastors, uh, leaders of parachurch organizations who have had uh, moral failings of some sort? You can just raise your hand if you're familiar with this. Have you heard of any of these re re recently? There's been a rash of them. It's incredible, actually, and really, really discouraging. You see, uh, I've experienced both out kind of in the wider public, but also in my own life. Pastors I've served under have these issues that have come to the fore, that have wrecked both their ministries and their lives and the lives of people who have gathered themselves around these churches or these ministries or these pastors. Pastors who, it appears, have been kind of further down the road of following Jesus, but have, when, it, when push comes to shove, end up bearing bad fruit in their lives. Just in the past two years, we've seen very high-profile and important church leaders uh, fall to scandals, some of a sexual nature, others about the misuse of power or authority. And like I said, one of a pastor that I worked for recently in the past year had one of these things, and it's just gutting. It's gutting. It really is. And seeing that, seeing those who would claim spiritual leadership fall in that way, leads me to a question. It makes me ask questions of my own life, obviously, but it also leads me to a kind of question for the wider church. Why all the bad fruit? If what Jesus said here is true, right, in our teaching text, why all the bad fruit? After what seems like so many years of good fruit and successful ministries and big crowds and turnouts and buildings and money, some of them even had great theology, right? They had all their ducks in a row. Why the bad fruit? None of it seems to be, make much sense, right? How is it that a spiritual leaders or Christian leaders public-facing life can look so organized and even so godly, and yet their inner life, their heart, and their soul could be so misshapen. Now, when we say this, there should be a note of humility involved in it, right? This isn't us judging, and I think whenever we see some type of 
uh, failure on the part of others, those who, claim, who, those who follow Christ or claim to follow Christ. It should make us first and foremost look inward, right? To observe our own hearts, to, make the, to, to try and make sure that uh, we're, we're shoring up the cracks in our own character. But what leads people down a path of sin who particularly look like from the outside that they have it all together and say all the right things and do all the right things? Where's the disconnect? Where's the, where's the hitch in the circuit? Why is everything not put together? And if spiritual leaders can't seem to bear good fruit over the long haul of their lives, what good do normal people like us have in doing it, right? How do we put together any level of godly integrity that brings good out of the storehouse stored up of good in our hearts? How do we do that? And here's what I think. Jesus never instructs us to build an edifice of Christian perfection in our lives. Jesus did not call us to build big ministries or big, build big buildings or have uh, big public-facing lives. Rather, he instructs us to follow him and to build our lives on his teaching. This is what he says in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man or woman who built his house on the rock. Now, notice here that Jesus does not say, memorize these words of mine and recite them to yourself all of the time. Or, or uh, find these words in the Bible as quickly as possible, and then you will get a kind of sword drill merit badge or something. No, he says, he says hear these words of mine and put them into practice. Put them into practice. You see, what I think Jesus is pointing at here is that there is more than one way to know and understand something, isn't there? There's more than one way to know, actually. Philosophers have talked about this forever. But there is a, there is a kind of knowledge that is cognitive or in your head. It's about facts and figures. And then there's a kind of knowledge that is experiential. It's in your bones. It's almost in your reflexes. Think about it like this, about riding a bike. I've been trying to teach my kids how to ride a bike. I'm not a very good bike riding instructor. I'm decent at doing it, but if you ask somebody, how do I ride a bike, and you try to explain that to them, it wouldn't work, would it? You can't really explain bike riding. You kind of got to just do it. You got to run into a few evergreen trees uh, <laughs> as your dad pushes you a little too hard, right? Until you find the balance. Until you, you, until you feel what it's like to ride a bike, you're never really going to be able to learn how to do it. You can't read a bike riding textbook and learn anything significant there until you know it in your body. And there's a, there's a, there's a correlate to that as well about the way we understand and know things that's in our body. When you were growing up in your hometown, you were, let's say, you're between the ages of third and sixth grade when you're starting to get a little bit more freedom and your parents are sending you out to, I don't know, go to the grocery store and get buns for dinner or something. Did you know any of the street names of the town that you lived in? Maybe some of you did, but most of us knew simply, inherently, kind of by experience, how to get from our house to the store or from our house to school or from our house to all of our other friends' houses, or in my case, 
from my house to the convenience store where they had copious amounts of Orange Crush and boxes of nerds. Uh, we just kind of knew how to do it. Now, if someone were to ask me, how do I get to the quick trip? Because I would like to acquire my own box of nerds and, and gallon and a half of Orange Crush, and it's surprising in no way, shape, or form that I can't have sugar anymore. Um, I would not be able to tell them a turn-by-turn street name process for which, where, how to get to that place, right? As you get older, you come to understand that knowledge, but the knowledge of how to get around your hometown is kind of embedded in you, in, isn't it, in a sense. It's knowledge that is experiential rather than just cognitive or in your head. And what I think happens innumerable times in the Christian tradition and what often happens in American evangelicalism because we're so, such a head-centric people is that we try to get as much information into our brains as possible. We live in an information age. Does anybody spend too much time on their smartphone, right? You have more information at your fingertips on your smartphone than any other generation that's ever lived on the face of the earth, and yet we're just as dysfunctional, if not more so, than all of them, right? So information is not going to be our saving grace, is it? Information is not going to be our saving grace. There is something we can do with knowledge. There is something that uh, information does for us, but the type of knowledge that Christ, that Jesus wants us to have in this passage when he says, put my words into practice, is not the information that gets in our head. Rather, it's the kind of experiential information or knowledge that transforms our hearts. You see, Jesus wants us to experience or to practice the reality of what it is to be his disciple, to follow him. Do you ever, the stories of the Gospels, there's a few teaching examples in the, in the Gospels, of the way in which Jesus taught his disciples. But most of the time, what he said to them was, follow me, right? Learn from me. Do what I do. There's very few examples of him teaching them in the Gospels, other than, say, the Sermon on the Mount, in any clear or concise way. He taught them in a way that said, watch what I do, emulate what I do, follow me, practice this way of life. Learn the rhythms of the kingdom in such a way as that it doesn't bypass but works with your brain or with the knowledge of your head and slowly over time transforms your heart or your orientation, even your desires, even to our very desires and imagination. Jesus wants to transform us, and he wants us to know in a way that isn't just cognitive about the beliefs we hold, but rather is deep inside of us, is kind of reflexive in its orientation, so that when we're jostled, when we're shaken, when we're, when we're pressured, the thing that comes out of us by not first nature, the fallen nature, but second nature, is a kind of natural kingdom response. This is what Jesus wants for us. And this is why he instructs us to follow his way, to follow his pattern of life, to take on, take on his yoke or his teaching, not as a means of acquiring anything of value, but rather as a way of living into the truth that he has made available to us. You see, to truly follow Jesus, we will not grow by knowing things about God, but to... Tr but we will grow as we practice Jesus' way and learn to transform the inner man 
the inner heart, our, our desires or our imagination in such a way is that we begin to want what God wants. We begin to see what God sees. We begin to love, probably most importantly of all, how God loves. And to grow to be conformed to God's kingdom and to bear good fruit. Now, this is not about perfection, but it is about seeing the life of heaven kind of suffuse our own lives. This is what the Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith says about this process. He says, desires shape how one sees and understands the world. And so the key question for the Christian in pursuit of knowledge is first to consider the shape or the aim of one's desire and to specifically seek to increase one's desire for God. How does this happen? How does one acquire such dispositions of desire? Through participation in concrete Christian practices like confession. So basically for Smith, we shape our desires, we transform our hearts through the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24. We put his words into practice. We do the stuff. We follow him and we do what he says and we learn through experience. And over time, God miraculously, in tandem with the work of the Spirit in our lives, transforms our hearts so that we begin to store up good in our heart, in the language of our teaching text, rather than evil. You see, it is possible to have all of the external ducks in a row, to believe all of the right things, to look good on the outside, and to even produce some things that look good, but to not allow the Spirit to do a deep work of discipleship in our hearts. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And what we are looking for, what I think Jesus is asking of his followers is to allow his kingdom, his will, his word, his love, his character, his purpose to come to root itself deeply in our lives. To want what God wants. This is why I think the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer, says, your kingdom come and your will be done. I don't know about you, but when I pray that prayer every night with my children before they go to bed, I don't always want what God wants, right, in that moment. Sometimes I want these little rascals to go to sleep. Usually, that's what I want, right? But, but by praying that prayer, we realign ourselves behind this reality that what God is driving at and what Jesus wants for us is to will what he wills, to will that his kingdom would come and his will would be done just like he does. And though we know that there is a distance between my will and God's will, through putting into practice in concrete forms what it means to follow Jesus, we can transform our hearts so that over time, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, we begin to transform our inner man or inner woman. And our desires and our hearts change through putting these words into practice. And when we put these words into practice that Jesus says, when we actually do go about the business of following him, what we really do is kind of open up the hood of our lives and we allow Jesus in to kind of root around a little bit and sort some things out. You see, here's the truth. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to save your soul. He, but he, and he also wants to be your teacher. 
in, in, he wants to be your teacher in a real day-to-day -day type of situation, helping us to sort out our inner lives, our heart, our thoughts, our emotions, as well as our personal relationships and the way in which we relate to the world. Jesus wants to be your teacher. And historically, here is how Christians have thought about this pattern of following Jesus. We've, we've talked about it a lot at Grace Community. But historically, the way Christians talk about it is through this language of spiritual disciplines. There's a lot of words. People call them a lot of things. Spiritual disciplines. I like to call them spiritual rhythms. Uh, other people just call them practices, right? But the, there are these patterns of Christian living. There are these concrete behaviors that Christians participate in and do in order to follow Jesus and to allow these concrete practices to transform who we are. You see, the only way we learn, really learn, in the way that Jesus wants us to is to learn through experience. And it's not a quick fix thing. It's a, it's a process of rewiring our hearts in such a way as that we learn to emulate Jesus's way of life. And as we begin to see through his eyes, as we follow him and emulate his way of life, it allows Jesus the room to transform us. And so there are a lot of different, uh, there are a lot of different disciplines or spiritual rhythms that we can talk about in this message. And honestly, we could talk endlessly about all of these. Each of these spiritual disciplines that I'm going to list here today, this list is not exhaustive, but each of them could have their own four-part series attached to them. But I just want to walk briefly with you through these spiritual disciplines as a means of showing you, I think, some of what it means to actually put into practice the words of Jesus. Are you with me? Thank you, Carol. Nailed it. A plus. All right. So I think we have them on the screen. Here, the, this is not an exhaustive list of spiritual disciplines. It's just a list that I threw up uh, this week onto my notes. So uh, here's a list. Solitude, prayer, silence, frugality. That's a great word, isn't it? Uh, uh, <laughs> chastity, another great word that we don't use very often. Giving, gathering, or fellowship, and secrecy. Now, I just want to briefly, here's what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning. I just want to walk through these spiritual disciplines with you, and I as I describe them and talk about the ways in which, as we follow Jesus in these patterns of life or in these spiritual disciplines or in these rhythms, I want you to kind of pay attention to what it's talking about it's leading us out of and lead, or leading us into, and just ask yourself in the quietness of your heart, ask the Holy Spirit, do I need to practice this one, Right? Does God, want to, does God want to transform my heart or the deep recesses of my being through the use of this, uh, through the practice, this practice or this way of following Jesus? So um, as I read through these, just kind of follow along and jot down with me, all right? So the first one is solitude. Solitude. Who's familiar with solitude? Raise your hand. Solitude is simply put, time alone with God that frees us from the grip of the opinions and influence of, influences of others so that we can attend only to the will of our Father. We live in a loud world, don't we? There is a lot going on. I don't know about you, but sometimes by about 3.30 in the afternoon, like all my synapses are fried, right? There's just so much sound and so much movement, and I've taken in so many uh, images and podcasts, and I've been on my computer for four hours, and uh, I've been up since 5.30, and the, the TV's been on, and there's just so much noise, and there's just so much busyness, 
And there's just so many people around that solitude frees me up to a certain extent to begin to attend to the will of the Father. You see, Jesus often drew away by himself, the scriptures tell us, to a lonely place. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus do that? Apparently, he needed to, right? He had 12 young disciples who kept asking him questions and making horrible mistakes, and he needed a moment of peace, right? He, that's, it's true, but also, he just needed to get away. And think about the world that Jesus occupied. It was not as fast-paced as our world. There are all these stories of Jesus just being on the road all day, right? Just walking quietly. Could you imagine if today they were like, Nick, you don't have to answer any emails. I just want you to walk 12 miles in that direction. I'd be like, this is a very nice thing to do, right? Be very calming and spiritually significant for me. Uh, and yet, even in the midst of that culture where the, where the volume was turned down, right, uh, Solitude was still this important discipline for Jesus to uh, take on. Become, be getting alone with God, as it were, was something that Jesus needed to do. Now, I'm aware that many of us are in the phase of life where solitude is quite difficult, right? You have a lot of kids. I uh, wake up usually between like 5.30 and 6, sometimes a little before that uh, on most days, very, very rarely am I up at that time that there's not a child or multiple children with me. It's very hard to be alone in this, the phase of life in which I am in. And so solitude has to be something that you cultivate, not only uh, as a spiritual discipline of just being away from people, but a kind of solitude that you can cultivate even in the presence of people. Does that make sense? That there, there's, a, there's a way of being alone with God, even when you're not fully alone. That has to do with our attention and the way we give our attention. And it's a spiritual discipline that I think is vital, vital in the fast-paced kind of people, 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 thing, thing, thing world that we occupy right now. All right? So solitude is one. Prayer is another one. This is obviously the central discipline of the Christian life, to be a praying person. It is simply communicating with God. Through prayer, we learn to bring all of our lives before God so that he can have his way in and through us. This is simply what prayer is. Prayer is a lot of things. We could talk about it for ages and ages and ages. But quite simply, prayer is just the process of communicating with God. And through prayer, we open ourselves, our emotions, our minds, our attention, and we put them on God. And we hopefully converse or communicate with Him. Uh, when I was younger, prayer was often a very verbal thing on my part. It was, ha it, was happen it was something that I did, right? It was a list of things that I wrote down, and I, and I ticked off the box. And as I've, as I've grown older, prayer is not so much me talking as it is me sitting with a kind of awareness of God's presence and his love. And very often, uh, talking becomes a thing that happens. But uh, but prayer has shifted for me over the years into a kind of more, uh, the word that historically Christians have used for this is contemplative space, a space where we just make ourselves available to the presence of God. In the mornings when I pray, I say this little prayer to start off, and I say, oh Lord, rise to meet me. As the, the, uh, sorry, <laughs> when you're in front of people, you can't do stuff. 
uh, O Lord, may my soul rise to meet you as the day rises to meet the sun. May give glory to the Father and the Son to the Holy Spirit. That's how I start prayer in the morning. And when I do that, I just make myself available or, or open to the presence of God. And I pray. And I pray. All right? So that's prayer. Maybe you're in this place today and you're like, I should start there. And my encouragement to you would be, start there. All right? Start there. So the third discipline that I want to talk to is silence. Silence has a lot to do with solitude, but silence is we just quit the buzzing of our very loud world in order to attend to the still small voice of the Spirit uh, that, that is speaking to us. I am absolutely convinced that God speaks, that He's always speaking, actually. It's just I who am not open to hearing, right? And silence is a discipline we take on in order to uh, hear the voice of God. Fasting, fasting. Anybody have any fun fasting stories? I do. Well, let me share it. Uh, in, I was a freshman in college, and when you're a freshman in Bible college, they, they encourage you to fast a lot, um, more than I was ever used to or comfortable with. And one of the things they asked us to do is fast for a whole week. We had this thing called Spiritual Emphasis Week. And uh, they said, why don't you fast food for the entirety of this week? And I had never fasted more than like a meal or two. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm young. I'm viral. I'm gonna fast. I can make it. So I, I was about day three. I was really hungry, and I was like, oh, I, but I'm not gonna eat. I'm not gonna break this fast. And I was in the cafeteria because I was just talking to my friends, and I was like, you know what? I can solve this problem. I'm gonna drink apple juice. I'm gonna. So, so I drank four glasses of apple juice. Guess what happened? <laughs> uh, uh, I ended up not consuming that apple juice. It, uh, <laughs> it came back to bite me. Uh, because, uh, but here's the thing, right? Fasting, and here's, we'll go to our definition. Fasting is about the abstinence from food, but also other things, as a way of reminding ourselves that man does not live by bread alone, but rather we feast on the word of God or the words that come from God. Fasting is a difficult discipline, and different people can do it at different amounts of time. Uh, the pattern in my life that's been most healthy is, is simply skipping a meal at least once a week. But the, uh, fasting is not a means of acquiring spiritual power. It's not a means of coercing God to do something. It is rather an opportunity to remind ourselves of God's love and his faithfulness and that we don't live on bread alone. All right? So fasting. Uh, the next one here is frugality. We choose in frugality not to use money or goods to gratify our desires for status, glamour, or luxury, but instead we choose to live with less, to train our hearts that what the culture tells us we need is actually a lie. What, cult what culture tells you you need is a lie. You don't need it, right? We live now with more stuff than anybody in the history of the world, and there's so much we don't need, and we practice this art of frugality in order to remind ourselves that we don't need what we think we need. And by so doing, we, we, the, the kind of hooks that our consumer culture has in us, we, we, we loosen those hooks and we transform our heart through this practice of frugality. The next one up is chastity. That's a good word, right? This is how we're defining chastity this morning. We live in a sexually disordered world, all right? Chastity teaches us to abstain from sexual sin, but also to channel our desires in appropriate and God-honoring ways. I don't think I need to tell you, any of you that we live in a world that tells us that we are our desires, and anything we desire is in and of itself good, right? 
and especially in this component of our uh, of our of our sexual lives uh, in the our, our being as sexual people we are told to not um not curtail our desires but rather to see them just fulfilled completely out into the world now this applies to both married people and unmarried people paul tells uh, the church that they should abstain from re uh, sexual relations from time to time in order to dedicate themselves to the Lord, in order to remind themselves that they are not their urges, right? And the instruction of Scripture for those who aren't married is to uh, is to withstand the just onslaught of of just craziness that is in our culture, and to live chaste in holy lives before the Lord. Not as a means of like repressing who we are, but rather as a means of flourishing. This is why the scriptures curtail sexual relations for within the confines of a loving marriage. It, they do, it does that not because it's trying to ruin our good time, but because the scriptures teach us quite clearly that that uh, bond, that relationship of marriage is the only uh, institution that can carry the weight of something as weighty, as important, as our uh, fully vulnerable selves before one another in a sexual relationship. Chastity is, across the board, one of the most important and countercultural things Christians can practice in our day. Are you with me? It's just so important. It's just so important. And so my encouragement to you is this is a very big one, obviously, right? We could, we could talk for a long time about chastity. Uh, but my encouragement for you and my encouragement for every human being, right, who's in the room, who's created, the scripture tells us male and female, he created them. And so in some sense, we, in some sense, we are sexual beings and we all have to grapple with this part of our lives, right? So the, the question is, how are you grappling with that part of your being before the Lord, right? And what am I doing in my lives? What, what practices, what, uh, what type of life am I, am I cultivating as a sexual being that glorifies God, yes, but also turns me into the type of person that doesn't blown by the wind of our culture, right? A culture that uses and abuses people, that sees people as objects, right, to be, to be used and to, for my own gratification, Chastity is incredibly, incredibly important. Let's keep it moving. Giving. <laughs> From chastity to giving, right? Giving teaches us that God is the source of all good things. Through giving, we learn to avoid the corrupting power of money and instead see it as a resource we are called to leverage for God's kingdom. So giving is not something you do to please God. Again, this is not about earning. This is not about God dropping the hammer on you if you don't do it. This is about learning to live into the kingdom of God in a way that allows you to flourish. God doesn't want you to give either to other people or to the church because he, because it's a rule that he wants you to follow. He wants you to do it because it's the best thing for you. It just is. It's just the best thing for your heart. I don't want to live as a slave to money. And the best way I know how to break the slavery I have to my own money or to my own resources or even to lie to myself and tell me it's mine to begin with is just to give it. It's just to give it. And there is a blessing in that that we cannot comprehend. There really and truly is. All right? I got two more and then we're going to be done. Uh, Nate, if you could come up. Uh, la the second to last, gathering or fellowship. This is coming to church. 
or gathering in a small group. When we gather together for worship, we remind ourselves of who we truly are, that we are the called out ones, we are the ecclesia, we are the church. In fellowship, we remember that we are not on this journey alone, and we make ourselves available to the grace of God and to the ministry of the Spirit. Here's why you come to church. It is not to, again, it is, it is not to fulfill or to make God happy. It is to allow God to work on you. And it is to open ourselves to the grace or to the ministry of the Spirit that Jesus said would be present with us when we gather together. You see, you shouldn't want to miss church and I shouldn't want to miss church, not out of some like place of obligation, but rather because when we gather together, there's something sweet that occurs. There's something powerful that happens in this place as we remind ourselves again and again and again that we are God's people, that he has called us according to his good purposes, and he has a plan for our lives to be kingdom people, to be kingdom people. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and this is why we gather. This is, oh, and here's the truth. Church is going to be boring for you sometimes. It's not going to be great all the time, right? You will leave church sometimes and go, I didn't get anything out of that. Nick made no sense. That'll happen. I just hope it's not today. Uh, you don't go because I make sense every week. You don't go to church because the worship is great every week. You don't go to church because you like the person you're sitting next to. I hope you do. You go to church because over time, as we, as we open ourselves to the work of the Spirit, God forms something in us. Forms something in us. He transforms us in such a way as that we become more the type of people that want to cooperate with Him. It is a compound nature. It is like working out, right? You, you don't run one time a week in order, to, uh, in, in order to just get good at it. You run a, in a rhythmic pattern day after day after day in order to be, become a type of person that can run a distance, right? And we attend church and we worship together and we, uh, and we stand for the reading of God's word and we hear the scriptures proclaimed and we, receive the, we come to the table of communion together so that all of those things in conjunction with the work and will of the spirit transform us over time. That's why it's important to be in church. All right? And the last one this morning is secrecy. Uh, secrecy is not broadcasting our goodness so that we can learn to do good for God's sake rather than for the approval of other people. Not broadcasting our goodness. This is hard, right? It is hard to not broadcast your goodness. We are conditioned from an early age that when we do anything good, right, there should be a bunch of people just like, yay, Nick did something great, right? We're conditioned by that. I'm conditioning my children to do that right now. But as we mature as followers of Jesus, we should come to a place where we don't act out of the approval of others. And this is one I'm working on. We don't act out of the approval of others, but we act for the approval of our Father, right? We live out of a place of deep connection to the Father. And we can do good work in secret. We can do uh, the disciplines in secret. We can love people well in secret. We can give to people in secret. Not because if somebody finds out we gave something that that like breaks the spell and it, it, we shouldn't have done it in the first place. No, because we want to be a people who don't broadcast our goodness, who don't look for the approval of others, but rather who look for the approval of God. 
All right? So those are just, a, a, it's not an exhaustive list. Would you stand with me this morning? It's not an exhaustive list of the disciplines, and I've taken far too much time already this morning. But what I want to do in our last minute or two, if we just throw that slide up with just, the, just all of the disciplines up, just in an attitude of prayer this morning, would you look over that list? And would you, just in an, in, before the Spirit, just ask God, which of these do I need to maybe add to my regiment? Which of these disciplines do I need to add to my life in such a way as that I would begin to form my heart in the pattern or in the way of Jesus? Let's just, let's just look at that list and pray real fast, all right? Father, we love you. And we pray that this morning that you would help us to become Jesus people. We know that you don't want us to be people with just head knowledge. You don't want us to be simply people who acquire information and then have uh, and then bring bad out of the storehouse of our hearts. But rather, you want us to store up in our heart a good uh, deposit of love and grace and peace. You want to transform us from the inside out. And so, God, we pray that you would put on each one of our hearts one of these disciplines that maybe we need to practice a little bit more this week, this month, this year. And that by so doing, you would have your will and your way in our lives and that you would transform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Jesus, we pray it all in your name. Would you have your will and your way in our lives? Amen and amen and amen. All right. Thanks for enduring that little thing. Uh, it's good to see you. We're excited for everything that's happening uh, this, these next couple of weeks uh, and into the fall. Uh, if you would head out, talk to Jen uh, about Caden's Closet before you get away. Would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.